Hello and welcome to another Hometown Daily News Show. Tonight's episode is Season 2 Episode... Season 2 Episode 72. From the Oscars to Sesame Street NFTs and more news. We've already selected the articles. What we're going to start out with is things you didn't see on the Oscars last night. These are the, the moments where the camera cut away. A candy-striped spider that wraps up and kills sleeping prey in the dead of night. This one should have been saved for Halloween, but... First Tesla, now Nissan. Nissan is having a bad couple of weeks, by the way. A car shouldn't have its steering wheel fall off, but apparently they do. Marvel is angry about an Ant-Man dialogue leak, and they want the identities of Reddit and Google users that apparently exposed it we have the return of nanoplastics probably worse than those candy striped spiders based on what we read about today we have a an article about regulating banks or the greed will make us pay the price we're doing that in some way already Kettle One has a cocktail machine that creates espresso martinis in 20 seconds. We'll talk about it very briefly, as if. A a location, location, location article about the health of beehives. And uh, new data tracks the failure rates of SSD models, so storage devices very important nowadays it's always been important but ssds haven't been tracked long term we'll talk about it briefly podcasters made a new xlr usb jack come into existence i find it really interesting so i decided to pull that into today's articles and we're going to close out the night with sesame street to launch their first nfts starting with Cookie Monster, huh? You thought I was going to say Oscar, but nope. Let's get into tonight's articles. Hey, look, my camera's working again. Yay. I am Merwat. That is hometown.com. And the visualizer up there is the AI from on high. Why don't you say hi, AI? Good evening, hometown citizens. Pretty neat, huh? I, I'm going to start changing your visualizer to, to match the mood. So right there, I have purple and pink going because I am secure in my masculinity and I can handle a purple and pink shirt. In fact, salmon looks really good on me. Not the fish the color um tan and taupe there's something about mary colors oh i just saw that's what goes on behind the scenes these um hill articles it just refreshed without me actually doing anything that was weird i just saw it refresh yeah um anyway so uh this is hometown right here and these are the six uh, categories that 50 shows, 50 channels exist under. And then there's the podcast one where you can actually listen to the podcast, which is this show 
pretty much unedited. Usually like the trailing ends I, I pull off um, because it's kind of a lead in and not really material. Um, but you can actually listen to the podcast without even having a podcast catcher, podcatcher, a podcatcher, an app to catch pods. That's good because I don't think I'd recognize a podcatcher if I saw one. <laughs> there's a bunch. There's a bunch of apps out there, um, including like built-in ones to like iOS and stuff like that. Anyway, or iPhone OS. At any rate, the, the, we have six main categories like creative and maker, news and business, science and education, food, drink and entertainment, uh, society, politics and law and gadgets and technology. I've actually they used to be single names, but I've expanded them to give them a little bit more uh, concentration and, and uh, description. Um, each of these should have news sources within them. If they don't, it's because they've been turned off temporarily. Um, while we reevaluate or evaluate these news sources, sometimes they're not really measuring up um, to the, the demands that I have as mayor of hometown. Um, and I actually use this uh, every single day, regularly throughout the day. And I've been doing this for, I don't know, well, only publicly available for the last two years, year and a half now. Um, and, uh, but I've been using it for close to a decade, <laughs> um, in various forms of this, but go check it out. Go over to hometown.com. If you're interested in finding out about the articles before we even get going, go over to hometown.showbot.tv. That's where the articles are actually housed, where you can vote on them as we are talking about them. And I'll throw them into the chat. So they're part of the VOD. And they'll be in the show notes over on YouTube for long-term storage and the podcast. So I, I, I do this only so that people who are, and we are a very new podcast, YouTube channel, Twitch stream, um, in the grand scheme of things. And so, uh, I like to you know, elucidate on the uh, nature of the show and how to navigate it and, and things like that. So. Come and hang out with us. Uh, we are here every day, 9 p.m. Eastern. Um, well, at least until the AI says that's it and just deletes everything and uh, I am never heard from again. Um, well, we had somebody come into the chat and drop an ad, so that's okay. Uh, no more for you. Okay. So we're going to get on to the first show or the first article for the show. And it's what you didn't see on TV on the Oscars night. Uh, that was yesterday. Um, it was really neat. Every single um, acceptance speech was uh, passionate and emotional and heartfelt, um, at least of the ones that uh, we got to watch. Um, others, you know, we actually did a show right in the middle of the Oscars. So, um, rain or shine, we are like the old school, um, postal service, uh, you know, <laughs> no rain, rain or sleet, shine or, yeah. or, I forgot the saying <laughs> or, uh, well now you have to say, or climate change, um, or massive inflation or debilitating student loan debt. 
we will do a show every day at 9 p.m. and expanding. Uh, honestly, I've been trying to expand it, but things pull me away. Um, I've got five now that I would like to do um, uh, regularly. So the problem is that we, I have to find a time before or after the show and nine o'clock is actually a kind of sweet spot for this show. Um, that said, what you didn't see on the Oscars uh, last night, it says the stars will gladly play for the camera uh, posted in their face during the global broadcast. They are actors after all, but a lot of the time seems like it would rather just talk to their fellow artists in the room. Um, the breaks may go on for an eternity for people watching the Oscars at home, but uh, uh, in the Dolby, and that's where the theater, that's the name of the theater, Dolby Theater. Um, they're never long enough as the stars on the main floor abruptly end conversations. So it's something that happens on the regular where a camera will just kind of break in. They'll have to stop what they're doing and, and uh, either ham it up for the show or um, kind of be perceived as being a party pooper, right? So every time a camera points at them, they go into professional mode and um, act honestly. Well, at least one person is being perceived as not really being happy about an award, and I just don't see it, right? I, I, we won't go into Angela Bassett's like response uh, to not getting the award, but what I saw was kind of like a, eh, okay, um, kind of response and, and not overwhelmingly happy for somebody else, just you know, maybe they felt, but apparently you, you have to be overwhelmingly happy, appreciative that somebody else won. Anyway, this article is over at thehill.com uh, from the Associated Press. What you didn't see on TV on Oscars night is the title. And so it says, uh, you know, the beginning of the show was all, is always a scramble, uh, security organizers and a booming voice of God. Uh, no, that's the AI at hometown. Um, all try to coax attendees into their seats in time for the live broadcast to start and all kinds of stuff takes place. Jimmy Kimmel comes onto the stage and um, takes a shot at uh, Will Smith and many other things. Um, and uh, so it says here, uh, after his loss, Henry, and uh, let's see, Brian Tyree Henry um, was in good spirits in the lobby. He made his way over to Phoebe Waller-Bridge and Martin McDonough. Um, he asked for a photo with Waller-Bridge, uh, which McDonough then dutifully snapped. Back in the room, as Jamie Lee Curtis took the stage to accept her supporting actress prize, Kate Blanchett put her hands over her mouth and made prayer hands toward the newly anointed Oscar winner. So this is all stuff that uh, somebody observed between the public uh, responses in the article. Um, I, I don't know. It, it's pretty verbose. Um, but if you're interested in knowing what goes on, it's kind of like watching an NFL game. And when they cut to commercial, you know, stuff goes on on the field. And then when they cut back, it's already been directed into existence so that somebody can talk about it. But this is the stuff, the more personal stuff, the, 
the stuff that isn't glitz and glam, you know, somebody tripping on something or somebody eating a pretzel or whatever might be going on. Um, it's the, the less glamorous side. Um, but honestly, I think this is the kind of stuff that makes people really appreciate that they are still people. Um, so if you're interested in that kind of thing, then uh, follow the link through hometown and go over to the hill. Um, we won't really go into a great detail beyond this, um, unless you have an observation from the article or uh, what you saw on Oscar night. No, not from the article, but I was just going to say I thought the um, the Oscars seemed more, um, I don't know what the word is, authentic, I guess, than I've seen in some prior years. And the um, winners seemed legitimately overwhelmed. Um, Brendan Fraser's speech, he was in tears. Um, the supporting actor for everything all at once, he was pretty overwhelmed. I, I mean, and many others. There were a lot of records made. Uh, this was a fairly diverse group of awardees. So that was also cool to see. Yeah, and everything so. everywhere all at once uh, was kind of the breakout hit for, I think they got seven um, Oscars. And um, the, the whole premise of that, by the way, was um, that the uh, writer and director wanted write, co-writer and co-director, because there were two of them, um said that he wanted to see his mom in the matrix so i thought that was a great premise for the 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 trigger for the creation of that work pretty amazing it was a fun movie um you know i can always nitpick my particular uh, certain idiosyncrasies within the movie but overall that was a fun watch um, let's move on to the next article. Uh, this one is over in fizz.org, if I remember right. And it's a candy-striped spider observed wrapping and killing sleeping prey at night. And it just brings up, like, the angel of death kind of thing, right? A candy striper. Um, and uh, when you actually see it, you go, oh, wait, why would they call it a candy-striped spider? Because it doesn't really look it's not as brightly colored as yeah. a candy striped spider i was anyway, envisioning something a little different than the photo yeah and uh, today we actually looked at each of the articles very briefly didn't read anything um, but just wanted to see a little bit more context than we usually do um no particular reason but a pair of um arachnology arachno how do you say that I want to say arachnologist, but that just doesn't sound right. But I people who study funny. arachnids, so arachnologists, it just doesn't flow. Um, with the University of Toronto Scarborough, uh, that might actually be pronounced differently idiomatically. Um, so like if you're a Torontonian, um, you may say Scarborough differently. Um, because I learned recently that if you are a native to Toronto, you're a Torontonian, but you don't actually say Toronto as the Toronto. You don't say all three syllables. It kind of blends together as Toronto. Um, I didn't know that. And uh, anyway, 
Ah, the things you say when you're streaming. Um, reports that in addition to its other ways of capturing and feeding on prey, candy-striped spiders also wrap up and feed on sleeping prey at night. In their paper published in the journal Ecology, Catherine Scott and Sean McCann described their study of the pre uh, predatory behavior of candy-striped spiders living on Vancouver Island in Canada. So let's just jump over to this article at fizz.org. Bob Yurka is the uh, author from fizz.org. They have a picture here of this candy striped spider. It has what looks like, you know, translucent legs, like glass legs. Um, they're really spiders and, and, and insects in general are really fascinating because their legs are hydraulic. So people sit there and go, can you imagine a, a 50 foot spider? Well, no, apparently it's impossible. The physics just don't stand up for it. Har har. Um, but this spider is creepy looking because it makes me think of it. It They should have called this a clown spider um, and not a candy striped spider. But even though it looks like a can, it has these little red stripes between yellowish white body. Um, really creepy looking. But I dig spiders, so creepy is very subjective. Um, I like prior... spiders if they're outside. I'm sorry, say I said I like spiders if they're outside. If they're inside, I don't like them. Um, I like them being outside as well. I definitely don't want them wrapping me up and consuming me while I'm sleeping. But if I'm going to get consumed by a spider, do it in my sleep. Um, prior research has shown that candy striped spiders, which look like candy jawbreakers with legs, capture prey using a web, similarly to other spiders. But they have also been seen stealing prey from other spiders. In this new effort, the researchers found that they have uh, another method of capturing and feeding on prey, and that's sneaking up on them in the dark as they are sleeping wrapping them in thread <laughs> i mean when i think of an animal that sneaks it's definitely spiders <laughs> not so um, much the wrapping part though so i've held um several different types of spiders and um you can't feel them like you just barely can feel them, I should say, but um, they distribute their weight so well and they're very light to begin with that you just, you don't feel them. Um, and some spiders leave a web behind them no matter what. They're always spinning a web. So it's pretty neat. Uh, I've never held one of these, but you would probably... I've never seen one of these. And... I don't know. They look kind of like standard fair spider. Um, oh, I just felt something crawling across my hand. <laughs> Power <clears throat> of suggestion. Yep. After noticing dead insects on plants while engaging in macro photography at night, McCann teamed up with a colleague, um, the co-writer of this paper, Scott, 
um, and two of them ventured into the night to study the behavior of candy-striped spiders in action, and they found that things happened fast, which meant that they had to use high-speed cameras. They found that the spider, which has poor vision, sensed a sleeping bug in a plant and climbed into it. Follow, uh, upon arrival, it sped into action, spinning thread around the bug, stopped occasionally to inject it with venom. Once the spider was convinced the, spray was, the, the prey was subdued, it began spreading digesting juices on parts of its exterior. And then it chewed a hole into it. And this is where ASMR night brought to you by fizz.org ends. <laughs> no, thank you on the ASMR. Pretty wild there, Bob. Thanks for bringing it to our attention here in hometown. If you're interested in that, follow that link. Um, I won't keep on repeating that sentence, but uh, just know that there are always URLs that lead you through hometown over to uh, the various articles. Um, this is a new article. Um, but something has been happening with not just EVs, but uh, for Nissan, it's been a bad couple of weeks. Um, they had a, one recall and then their stock took a massive hit. Uh, so two weeks ago, they had a recall, a massive recall. And then one week ago, their stock took a massive hit. And then today, the last 24 hours... Um, this article comes out. This is in Four Wheel Tech, um, a, a show about uh, vehicles and technology, not just e e EVs, but technology involved in cars altogether. And uh, this one is titled uh, First Tesla, Now Nissan, Another EV Recall to Replace a Steering Wheel. Um, and it makes me think of this little sitcom skit where the front of the boat falls off and they get into a discussion like well is that normal and the guy says what you mean for the front of a boat to fall off no 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 it's not normal um and then they towed it outside the environment and so the person says wait you, you towed the boat outside the environment to a different environment and the other guy says no no we towed it outside the environment all right so uh, the whole thing is a funny skit I'm paraphrasing all of it, so just go do a search for the front of the boat fell off and you'll find the skit. This is the steering wheel falls off. But Nis it's not a skit. But it's not a skit, correct. Nissan is recalling some of the newest Aria, which we don't, I, I don't think that's in the States. Um, electric SUVs this month, the culprit, yet another possibly loose steering wheel. As a result, the automaker has also issued a stop sale on the new EV until inventory vehicle um, vehicles can be inspected and if necessary fixed. The recall affects 1,063 Arias in total. So not a massive recall. The other one had to do with the keys apparently causing the car to stop operating. Um, and then something happened with its stock in between these two things. So this seems pretty small, but uh, in light of the Tesla issue where there are pictures where the steering wheel just kind of came off, um, it seems to be a problem. And that seems to be probably the most critical part of the car to me. No. Come on. 
The tires are obviously the most important thing. If you can't steer it, then doesn't matter if you have tires. <laughs> this article's over at ArsTechnica.com. Jonathan M. Gitlin is the author. And um, let's see here if there's anything else interesting in this. Inspection of other areas in inventory at Nissan dealerships revealed one other vehicle that had a loose steering wheel, this time with a bolt fitted but incorrectly torqued. Hate it when my bolts are torqued incorrectly. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, this is something that you wouldn't, uh, you would assume because to get to these bolts, it's not something that you just kind of walk up to it and go, Hey, let's tighten down some bolts. This is during the manufacturing process where it just wasn't tightened down at that time. It didn't come loose. It seems right. You don't think. And I mean, would they come loose on a thousand of them? Nissan was first alerted to the problem at the end of January when someone working at a dealership noticed a loose steering wheel on an Aria. And just over a week uh, later, a second dealership reported something similar. And upon investigation, Nissan discovered the steering wheel bolt was missing in this case. Nissan says both cars have um, been serviced uh, by the same technician at the port. So somebody had a screw loose somebody didn't have enough coffee that day man that joke fell flat <laughs> i gotta work on the ai want to move on to the next article sure. let's do that Okay, so this next article is in the Word and Law, and it's uh, Marvel is angry about Ant-Man. I don't know why I said it like that. Marvel angry about Ant-Man dialogue leak. Demands names of Reddit and Google users, apparently, that expose this. Marvel is seeking the identities of Reddit and Google users involved in the leak of Ant-Man uh, dialogue from Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. Marvel says that before the Ant-Man film's release, movie dialogue was leaked in a google docs file and that the link to said document was posted in a reddit thread and uh, it says here marvel on friday asked a federal court to issue digital millennium copyright act subpoenas to both reddit and google demanding the identities of people allegedly involved in the pre-release dialogue reveal including reddit moderators whom marvel suspects of being behind the leak this is an article over at ArsTechnica.com. Uh, John Brodkin is the author. It's kind of weird. Uh, is this... How many people would have had access to this? I mean, I know there's a lot of people who work at studios, but it doesn't seem good for your long-term career <laughs> if you work there and leaked it. And from now on, it's going to be kind of like the... what Was it... Led Zeppelin? Who was it that had like the um, brown M&Ms in the contract? Oh yeah, um, it was not Led Zeppelin. Hold on. Somebody... Van Halen. Was it Van Halen? Maybe it was Van Halen. Anyway, a band had a writer that said that, it, that they wanted brown M&Ms in... It's Van Halen. Um, so they had... A writer in the contract that said that they wanted brown M&Ms 
Um, and they knew that if they went into the green room and there were brown M&Ms, then they would have to double check or triple check everything that transpired in the construction of the stage and safety protocols and everything. Because obviously they didn't read all of the writers and enforce the policy or procedure therein, right? Observation, situational awareness, etc. So safety was at risk. Well, now, can you imagine how many landmines are going to be inside scripts that are released pre-release of a film yeah i mean what is it gonna say in there to show who had that copy or that it doesn't actually track with the real script i don't know it just seems like it's gonna get crazy from this point forward this is a major studio so sure i mean it's kind of concerning they put out a lot of movies and i don't know yeah, it's like A24 at the Oscars. Man, they had everything. Um, so this, this though, is going to reveal who it was, may reveal who it was. Um, and there's some legal wrangling that's going to take place uh, because everybody potentially will have the ability to defend themselves from identification. Um, that said... I don't know. DMCA is pretty heavy hitting. So if you reveal something now you have to, you have to say really what your loss is. So how were they really harmed? Everybody went who wanted to go went and saw Quantumania, right? So is there really financial harm here? I mean, it might've been really good marketing for it. it might've actually helped. I'm yeah. not condoning it, but we don't know if it actually damaged the studio. And there's a lot of screenplays that get posted online. Uh, you could probably do a search for anything and there is some semblance of a screenplay for a movie. If it rises to the level of interest where somebody actually decides to reconstruct it, I mean. But of course, usually those are after the movie has been released, Sure. right? Like their screenplay databases and Sure, but I'm, uh, I mean, if you're going to go and see yeah. Quantumania or if you're interested in Marvel, are you going to parse a screenplay and and go, hmm, the, the dialogue seems kind of weak. I, I, I don't think I'm going to go and, and watch, you know, the multiverse get built out a little bit more in Quantumania. Blech. Right, and I'm sorry, but is anybody really watching a Marvel movie for the dialogue? Are they watching it for the action or the special effects or there's a whole phrase called watch it for the plot that has nothing to do with marvel um but yeah do you do, do people really like the dialogue does play an important part but it's a combination of everything and i really doubt anybody is going to sit there and go that like i said you know the dialogue is weak i'm not going to go and see the movie yeah, there's going to be one person and they're probably the one person that says the multiverse is a lie. I'm not going to go there and, you know, pay my how much is a movie ticket nowadays? Like five hundred dollars? I, I, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> anyway, um, Marvel subpoena to Google seeks the same types of identifying information like real names, usernames, addresses, phone numbers, email addresses and IP addresses. For the user or users who posted or edited the document containing movie dialogue, 
Marvel also wants Google to provide a, quote, report setting forth any and all revisions made to the document between December 1st and February 15th, again, quote, including any identifying information for any user who edited and or made revisions to any such content, including any IP addresses associated with any revisions. So they're talking about revisions um, specifically. So if you were one of those Reddit users who just mashed the button and weren't given editing, if that link actually didn't have editing capabilities, then when you clicked on it, all you did was observe it. Um, which depending on the domain that you're in, that could actually land you in a lot of trouble and you have to disclose it. Like if you work for the federal government and you get linked to something that is top secret, um, that can actually land you in some serious trouble. Um, if your identity is found out at a later date, most of the time, I, I don't know, you know, it's really actually a private thing. So nobody really discusses it. I was going to uh, say the average movie ticket cost is not as high as I thought. It's about $12 in 2022. I would have yeah, thought but, it was actually much higher. But the popcorn, the, your whole experience oh, is a mortgage payment. So <laughs> Right. And if you have a family, forget it. Exactly. That's why I don't bring my family anywhere. Everybody stays in hometown and, and uh, we just uh, look at people who go and enjoy movies and live vicariously through their joy. Okay. Anyway, Marvel tries to subpoena both of the firms and we'll see what the results are. Uh, for some strange reason, I think that this is going to get quashed. Like they're going to find out who it is, but the whole thing is going to be built around. Okay. First off, you're fired and you can't talk about it. And if you do talk about it, we'll prosecute and everybody's just going to capitulate. Oh, okay, okay. I was a dumbass. I won't work in the industry anymore with you guys. Don't take my livelihood away. And I won't talk about me disclosing this. But they're going to want to find out about the leak. How did you get it? Exactly. But what do you think about the bigger picture about places like Reddit possibly disclosing user identity? Like, I think they can probably figure out pretty quickly who did this, or at least who posted it, maybe not who stole it or whatever. But um, I don't know. Is this going to be interesting for future cases against Reddit and Google? The, the thing is, though, that this is all about clout. This isn't anything about remuneration. This isn't compensation. This isn't money. This is all about clout, which I guess in the long term, you could daisy chain it into uh, something of value. I mean, there are people that have started out in Reddit posting stuff and they got so big because they are a chronic reposter and they just become known as somebody that provides content. Um, even if it is repeated content, um, and, uh, and then they parlay that into marketing or something else. But this, this is somebody risking their long-term career with a studio and by proxy, all of the other studios, because it's not like one person's going to sit there and go, okay, you did wrong by us. Uh, we're not going to tell anybody. Um, well, no, this person's probably going to get in some serious trouble across all of the studios because they can't be trusted with confidential information. Will Reddit and Google reveal the information? My problem is there's no money. 
What really actually happened? How much money did they actually lose? Is there something wrong here in that somebody lost something? I find it almost impossible um, to support that claim. Now, I'm not on the inside, but I think the DMCA is really heavy handed. Um, and there's no human fidelity there. This is so big that there has to be lawyers involved. So that right there is the money, but it's born from their own action to pursue somebody that didn't necessarily cause any harm. In fact, like you said, they may have actually pushed people to go because there's no there's no actual truth that this script was from Quantumania until after the movie's released or somebody That's from true. that has screeners says, oh yeah, this script and the screeners that I saw, which arguably you're not supposed to talk about your screeners, but people do. So I don't know. I don't think that there was any harm, but that's just me. You want to move on to the next one? Yes. Move on to the next article. Yes. Your audio has been cutting out a little bit. Oh, really? Oh, just not to the, the stream, not to so. the stream. Okay. Um, okay. So at any rate, let's, um, the next article is in the mobile channel malformations in heart, eyes, and nervous system, nanoplastics found to disrupt growth. I would make this as an assumption. Um, we are finding nanoplastics in humans um, permeating pretty much every aspect of the human. Um, nanoplastics cause malformations. This is the conclusion of Miro Wang, um, researcher at the Institute of Biology Leiden. Um, who looked at the extreme effects polystyrene nanoparticles could have using chicken embryos as a model. Thankfully, chicken embryos and not humans. Um, this is from Leiden University over at phys.org. Quote, we see malformations in the nervous system, heart, eyes, and other parts of the face, Wang said. We used a high concentration of polystyrene particles that would normally not be present in an organism but it shows what nanoplastics can do in extreme cases on very young embryos. And it also gives us guidelines on what can happen less severely in the developmental stage, says Wang. Um, and the results are published in Environmental International. Uh, nanoplastics, it says the title of this section here is Nano, Nanoplastics Target Stem Cells, which is the worst cells that could pro probably probably be impacted because those turn into pretty much everything. Um, so nanoplastics target the embryonic neural crest cells. Wang found these stem cells are formed very early in all vertebrates at the beginning of their existence and the neural crest cells start in what will be the spinal cord and migrate to uh, create part of the nervous system. They also form parts of uh, several important organs, such as arteries and a heart and face. Um, now they're using embryo, chicken embryos, right? Imagine the complexity of the human embryo and it running up against this immovable object that 
short circuits the cell division process I, I this is yet another element where I worry about nanoplastics what which is why I'm a proponent of moving away from um, plastics nanoplastics in well plastics in general in hometown um, <clears throat> difficulty here is that everything has something related to plastics um, from monitor bezels to phone cases to uh, coatings that are on desks to uh, cups to everything pretty much everything has something related to plastics um, and we've moved away from glass and metal um, and even in the metal uh, solutions they have coatings of plastics uh, to prevent corrosion or reactions with the metal for instance you can't put tomato sauce in something metallic because it will uh, etch the metal and pull ions out and cause oxidation um, and that will eventually poison your uh, acidic sauces or even bases in the other direction that's why glass is preferred for that but if you look at the lid of a glass bottle there you have something that is either plastic or rubber as a seal um, and therein lies additional problems again back to the nanoplastics so this is going to be an ongoing concern and i've been pondering how to go about um, doing some fundamental research in this to see if plastics are nanoplastic particles are actually breaking off from all plastics everywhere all the time and not something that's based entirely off of it decomposing somewhere and then finding its way into the food system because we're finding uh, researchers i should say are finding in it because i'm not doing the fundamental research uh, but i am positing the questions um that we're finding these plastics everywhere every level of the food chain all the way up to humans um nanoparticles are being found so do you think everything everywhere all at once was actually a documentary Nan about nanoplastics <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, everything is the oscars uh, the research project involves multiple research centers in Leiden and abroad, including CML, whose director, Martina uh, Vigver, is Wang's supervisor. Uh, quote, because nanoplastics are so small, it is impossible to see them using conventional microscopes. That is what makes it difficult to research. We can only see them uh, when they are fluorescently tagged, Richardson explained. Collaboration was the way to go, as this type of research can't be done as a one-man band. And that is a phrase that um, un until um, I became much older, uh, I thought that I was wise enough that I could be a one-man band. And uh, really nowadays, you know, let's just rephrase that, one-person band. You can't do fundamental research alone. Other people will have to verify it even if you... Uh, decidedly come out with a conclusion that just cannot be argued other people have to follow your research 
um, and verify. Trust, but verify. Um, so yeah, this, this could prove to be something even worse, um, likening it to something like uh, forever chemicals um, and, um, you know, uh, the, what was it? The chemicals that were thrown off the coast of Oregon, um, was it DDTs. No, those are the forever chemicals, PFAS stuff, but um, DDTs back in the 70s, I think it was, um, became, you know, the go-to forever chemical. And they were recently found off of the coast of Oregon, um, poisoning the ocean floor. And um, so this might be the same thing as coatings on frying pans or DDTs um, causing brittle eggs for birds, all, all kinds of stuff. We come out of the gate hot and heavy thinking that it's the end all be all and then we have to revert back or find some other solution um, but it's all follow the money um so let's move on and let's, let's go on to the next article um the next article is in the daily news show regulate their greed or pay the price this is an article from commondreams.org it's typically an opinion piece um i don't always agree with uh, I, how they title something. And I don't always agree with opinion pieces in general, but they're uh, but it, interesting to look at. Yeah. And it lets you know how somebody else is thinking and maybe there's some takeaway. There's always something of value in most people's long form uh, cogitation and the embodiment of those thoughts, unless they have a history of being a complete, an absolute wingnut. Um, this, though, it's the CEO of SVB didn't like the regulations imposed after the 2008 financial meltdown by Congress's Dodd-Frank uh, legislation and spent over half a million dollars bribing, um, influencing legislators. That's called lobbying, folks. And this is probably one of the times where I'm actually reading something pretty much verbatim uh, or influencing legislators. Uh, legalized by five Republicans on the Supreme Court to change the law and exempt his and other small regional banks from what he argued was the heavy hand of government. By the way, there are wingnuts out there right now that are blaming uh, the Biden administration for this. So uh, Tom Hartman uh, over at commondreams.org wrote this article Um and it says the failure of Silicon Valley Bank shows us once again, the unrestrained greed isn't good. I'm already in their camp for this. Um, for even modest greed to have a positive effect on society, it must be regulated. Yes, because humans will abuse as long as they can abuse, unless they have a strong ethical and moral compass. And I've had this conversation with other people where they've reiterated something along the lines of, well, you know, uh, their religious belief or their political belief or whatever it might be, but hate to break it to you. None of that actually stands up when for whatever reason you become disconnected from the social contract because of money you will say or do whatever you want to get more of that money. And until regulation comes in or society puts you back under that rock, you will keep on abusing. 
And if you can do it in the dark, you'll abuse it more. Um, and it being all kinds of things from people to nature, to animals, to everything you will abuse. Um, unless again, you have a strong moral compass that isn't predicated on somebody telling you to be like something you have that in you already. Uh, you don't have a book telling you, you don't have an organization telling you, you have grown up a, a person who has seen the benefits of society and you don't think that stepping on throats to get more money is the way to go. I know it's shocking to hear it from somebody, but hey, it's the social contract. Um, and when somebody does it and violates the law, they've broken the social contract and they end up in jail. If you do it to the tune of billions of dollars, you're too big to fail and you might end up with a slap on the wrist. This person, the CEO of SVB might end up in jail for a short period of time. Um, but if maybe they give up some money, maybe they'll soften the blow a little. Anyway, this, uh, uh, Tom Hartman here writes, uh, as philosophers from Socrates to Jesus to Adam Smith have told us over and over again, unregulated greed always ends up enriching the few while devastating the rest of society. Um, I don't know about all of that, um, but let's just say that everything that I just said pretty much has been proven again and again and again in nothing more than the last 50 years. Um, let alone going back further and further. Now we have the, in, the internet to amplify the notification of issues. And so you find out faster. And in this particular case, the fit hit the shan on Wednesday, they closed down on Thursday and were owned by, uh, a, a, <laughs> an entirely different entity by Friday. And the solution was resolved by another entity over the weekend and everybody was operational again on Monday, barring a couple of hits. Interestingly enough, the stock price is at 106 when over the weekend it was at 82. So I guess it's not too bad unless I'm looking at the wrong stock altogether, but it is the SVB investment group. So. Anyway, um, so five years later, predictably, the bank went into receivership and people who'd put their money into the trust were looking at substantial losses while once again, confidence in the entire system is shaken. And this is the basically a summary of the uh, response that Bernie Sanders posted. Um, and people started pointing at other people, but you know what? It takes a plurality to hobble regulation. Um, so will I say that only one person is responsible for this? Hell no. But I think the problem is that we have unregulated greed and it's, I think that it is, it became the embodiment of society where money is the single most important thing. And when you say stuff like that, you become branded a socialist or whatever. Um, but again, let me just say, 
I am a capitalist. I do believe in charging what I think something is for, but I do not believe in unethical capitalism. You should not step on people's throats to get ahead. Treat everybody as a member of society. But these are talking, you're talking about billions of dollars going to a concentrated number of people. And they do sociopathic actions to get that rich. They disconnect from society because with billions, you are untouchable by society. I'm looking at every billionaire that I have ever looked at. So what do you think? Have you observed something in this? Well, this article is bringing up the other banks that are looking interesting in light of SVB. Um, like Signature Bank has been shut down, I believe. And then First Republic Bank, apparently people are kind of in panic mode. Um, but I don't think the bank itself is closed. Um, so I was just looking at that in the article. And there are other people that or I should say other banks, other institutions that are probably trembling as new regulation is going to come down. But SVB is actually quite special in this regard, that while the ramp up to its collapse was taking place, it did not have a chief risk officer. And Dodd-Frank should have shut down any bank. It should have froze any bank that didn't have a an in place and already onboarded chief risk officer it should not have operated for nine months without a chief risk officer auditing and vetoing certain actions they should have been legal counsel that said you cannot do this you're risking too much and there are certain um, assessments that dodd frank requires and Obviously, this wasn't checked because it's supposed to look at eight quarters of transactions. And if the shock from a transaction is too high, you can't do it. But that's not what's going on. That's interesting. And to your point earlier about it being more than one person, I mean, I think that's very true. The CEO is at the the forefront of this, right? We see the CEO and the CEO was obviously directly involved because of the lobbying efforts, but think of all the people at the company that made this happen. Think of all the people in Congress who made this happen. I mean, there's a lot of people that facilitated this, if not directly caused it. Yep. Um, and just so you know, this article is quite expansive and goes back into the 1800s of capitalism. So not just capitalism, but social politics, uh, we're, we're talking <laughs> the civil war, um, and, uh, the twenties crash and et cetera. It, it's, this is no slouch in its historical context. Um, so I would say, um, that this is an interesting article that you should uh, definitely go over and read, but let's keep on hustling through all the articles. This next one will allow you to cope with the impact of uh, all of that greed. <clears throat> and that's uh, Kettle One's cocktail machine that creates espresso martinis in 20 seconds. This is a $1,500 espresso martini machine. Uh, it says for bars and restaurants, but 
I don't know. I think maybe uh, Ometown needs one. The brand debuted a new espresso martini machine for bars and restaurants this year. A Kettle One representative tells Vine Pair over email. The new machine creates cocktails in around 20 seconds per drink, cutting down on the hassle and time it takes to create the sweet beverage. What do you think? Do you think? I was uh, gonna say I think Hometown definitely needs one, and then you said the price. <laughs> um, but that so, sounds really nice to have a 20-second espresso martini. <laughs> this is no different than an espresso machine. A high-end, uh, well appointed espresso machine is around $1,500 anything less. And you basically have, um, shortcomings where you can't do two espressos really fast. And in, and in terms of a martini, if it mixes it all and does everything all at once, eh, I can buy into this being a $1,500 device. But if I have to do the espresso separate from the martini aspect of it, then I can sit there and spend 1500 bucks on an espresso machine and throw some booze in it. And then it's not a 20 second espresso martini. It's a 10 minute and 20 second or whatever. So true. But you know, it shows that you really love your espresso. Uh, Nicolette Baker over at uh, vinepair.com put this article together. And uh, apparently the photography is from kettle one. So this picture here is straight up from, kettle one i don't know you can't have an espresso martini in the morning so this thing is just it's five o'clock somewhere type of weekend territory pretty expensive for 1500 bucks but i guess if you're making bank from that svb um run up and you've bowed out soon enough like founders fund maybe you have the billions and you can just buy this too soon is it is very uh, soon but also it looks like you have to make the coffee separate yeah and then you pour uh, it in so <laughs> this is not a win um but it's uh, good marketing and um by 20 20- for a bar it might make sense for a restaurant yeah, it says to create a batch of espresso martinis using the machine bartender should mix the drink specs, vodka, cold brew coffee, coffee liqueur, simple syrup, and water and pour it into the machine. And from there, bartenders can dispense individual cocktails into martini glasses by simply pulling the machine's handle. You can do the same thing without the handle. Just fill <laughs> up something. Right? But the reason why people want something made on demand is so that it's fresher you know coffee actually goes stale it goes funky you know iced coffee sitting in a refrigerator over time just gets a little flat and kind of meh it loses its mm, you know it's mm, it's it's, you know that you know mm. yes in (laughs) fact i just looked up recently how long you can keep coffee that's been brewed in the like in a refrigerator and it's only a few days, but even then the taste is going to suffer. Yeah, it gets a little flat. Well, I don't know. Hey, Kettle One, if you want to send Ometown one of these. They could be our first sponsor. There you go. Sounds good to me. So the next article 
is in the Mobile Channel, a more natural location improves the microbial health of beehives, shows study. So location, location, location is more than just a business mantra. It's also a business mantra. I worked hard to make that happen. According to a study published in the journal Scientific Reports, uh, when the anthropization of beehives decreases, the relative abundance of their beneficial bacteria increases. <laughs> so please translate that into something that we can understand. Uh, put it in more natural surroundings and the beehives will be more natural. So in an international study, the Applied Genomics and Bioinformatics Group of the University of Basque Country uh, explores the situation of bees in areas of intensive agriculture, semi-natural areas, and natural areas, taking the beehive as a unit. The bees' microorganism pool was found to vary considerably depending on the degree of anthropization. Uh, after the hives had been uh, kept in a semi-natural habitat for 16 days, their microbial imbalance resulting from agriculture was reduced. So, it's kind of like... Living in the big city, you never eat any greens. You're going to have a different uh, skin. You're going to your hair is going to look different or and react to something different and so on. Well, bees in a more natural surrounding are going to be what? More natural. Shocking that this so does is. Does that mean like their stripes and everything will be more vibrant if they live in a natural setting? They'll have a healthier coat and gums and more energetic, and they will return the ball faster when you throw it and say fetch. So the Western honeybee Apis mellifera is endangered as a result of many of the stress factors it suffers in human dependent areas, such as poor nutrition, pesticides, and pathogens, pretty much humans. Quote, it has become apparent over the last few years that bee mortality has increased significantly. That is why about six years ago, we started looking at which factors influence the bee microbiota, the stuff in their stomach, um, and what relationship this has with bee diseases or health. Explained, this is a hell of a name. I'll give it a shot. Araxi? Arats. I guess. Arax. Watch their name be like Sarah. Um, exactly. <laughs> Zara Onandia. Man. Uh, please, but somebody. You're not done. You got to read the next part. Yeah. I guess Iker Basque, research fellow of applied genomics and bioinformatics. The researchers attach great importance to the anthropization of the areas in other words intensive agriculture chemicals used etc so the more we make them human um and and urbanized like how we want them to be and and make them exist in our world the worse they get and so putting them back into their natural surroundings away from all of the garbage that we create will make them be more natural. So 
It says, in, in collaboration with three Croatian universities, we have had the opportunity to study some beehives located in the Croatian island of Uniji, I guess. Far from human influence, these hives have not been subject to any treatment for 10 years. Their bees were known to survive for a long time despite the presence of varroa, the varroa mite. This is the mite that is believed to be the cause of colony collapse. Um, responsible for a disease that causes bees to sicken and die. Uh, they actually soften this blow. When they find the Varroa mite inside a hive, you're pretty much screwed. Um, we wanted to investigate how anthropization influences the microbiota and microorganism community of bees to do this. We compared the hives on the island of Aniji. Um, with the microbiota of two hives located in rural areas. And they found basically um, what we've already been saying. Significant impact since only 16 days later, we, they detected that the microbial imbalance due to agricultural stress had lessened in the hive, moved to the semi-natural area. Okay, wait a second. That is an amazing find. 16 days later? Think about like the the years long um, habitat that they mentioned. I mean, maybe they need to be putting hives in these rural areas and kind of re-triggering uh, the bee population. So what's interesting is I, I just looked it up. I didn't know how long it was. This is half the typical lifespan of a, of a male honeybee. Western honey okay. specific. I didn't know that. Um, and uh, female is typically 30 to 60 days. They're the workers. So um, I thought maybe there's enough uh, churn that the bees die off and are replaced. But this is actually less than half of, a, of the lifespan of a single bee. So um, it seems like pulling them out of a toxic environment will allow them to recover pretty damn fast. We are right. a product of what we consume. In one generation, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sooner, you know, right. There's a lot more to this article. Um, so please follow the link. You know, I love articles from fizz.org. I think there's always something interesting. And then also, I always learn some new information from them. Yeah, me too. Um, I dig that. And as a matter of fact, there, the one of the intents of Omtown was at some point when there is enough uh, critical mass per category, then each day would be a specific show um, and focus on that material. Um, but news comes so fast and heavy from day to day it it's tough to actually lock it down to a specific day like wednesday there's a thousand articles um that that time frame that 24-hour period between wednesday and, and thursday or tuesday night and wednesday and thursday morning um is a thousand plus articles and it's there's too much to just break off into a particular day and i really do enjoy the temporality of that 24 hour period where we talk about the news. Um, unfortunately, some of that on those busy days means that we have to deal with information overload 
Um, so maybe we can still do that and have a daily show. And that's one of the things that I was talking about. One of the five is um, a, a daily show that focuses on a topic. So I'm, I'm glad that you brought it up. Um, I think that fizz and science is one of the categories. Uh, not that I think it, it, it is one of the categories. Um, and so, you know, doing that would be really great. I just, I dig it. It could be in greenogram, um, which focuses on, uh, being ecologically sound. Um, anyway, the next article is, uh, well, it's going to involve more plastic, but um ssds or solid state discs i have no moving parts um but one of the things that people wonder about is the long-term survivability of these drives this is a website that has been tracking them going back for years uh, new data tracks failure rates of 13 ssd models going back up to four years uh, backblaze a san mateo california-based backup and cloud storage firm on thursday shared data giving us a unique look at the reliability of SSDs over uh, up to a four-year period of use and looking at 2,906 SSDs in its possession, the company tracked the failure rates of mostly consumer-grade SSDs, which it started using as boot drives in the start of Q4 2018. Um, I think it's really neat. Um, now, there's different classifications of SSDs. There's SATA drives that are classified as SSDs. And then there's M.2s. That's what these, this connector is an M.2 SSD. Um, and it says years long examination of thousands of boot drives provide unique perspective. And this is over at arstechnica.com. I don't, uh, Sharon Harding is the uh, author of this. And they talk, um, they have a graph and they talk about these uh, SSDs. And previously they had done this with HDDs or hard disk drives that are spinning platters. Um, it says uh, Backblaze has long shared data on the reliability of hard disk drives, but this latest report provides fresh perspective on HDDs, speedier, pricier cousins. Yes, absolutely. They are much more expensive and much faster than hard disk drives. SATA drives are right in between hard disk drive speeds and M.2 drives. Um, again, SATA SSDs and M.2s should not be, well, to refer to the bees and flowers cross-pollinated, don't make the mistake of getting a SATA SSD. Um, if you are expecting high speed, um, while it'll be faster and more reliable it, to me, at least based on my observations, um, than a hard disk, it's not even close to an M.2. Um, they have a list here of certain size drives, how many they have, the number of failures, um, which might be in line with uh, manufacturing drive failure times. Um, but it looks to me like the number of SSDs that have failed over the last four years pales in comparison to the number of hard drives that have failed even for me. I think in, in uh, well, I've actually moved away from 
hard disk drives because they're to me they're unreliable um you could buy like eight hard drives off of a shelf and because they're from the same manufacturing line they'll fail time 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 like six months right after each other um it's pretty ridiculous but ssds don't seem to fail like that uh, not with that same frequency um so they say before they get into the backblaze first table which depicts annualized failures or afrs for the 13 different ssd models it's important to note the limited size sample of 2906 drives that really shouldn't matter um, at this point uh, it says some drives have seen way more active use than others uh, with active days ranging from 104 days up to 724,240, um, which seems really interesting because that's, yeah, that's, that, that's a lot of work that that drive has been, <laughs> somebody, uh, is doing a whole lot of work on that drive. Um, at any rate, they go into greater detail about all of these drives uh, and their failure rates. So if you if you like data like this, um, and I certainly do, um, go and check it out. It looks like um, at the beginning of the drive's existence, it doesn't fail. And after four years, um, the peak looks like a 2% drive failure rate, um, which could be disconcerting if the number of drives it says that there were 11 drive failures for a particular class of 250 gig drive which is kind of low in today's standards um, but when you have thousands of them um, it adds up <clears throat> it says that they have uh, drive days of 154,000 and 11 drives failed uh, in four years always at the last it seems like at the very end is when they failed really low numbers at the initial size but that's pretty typical um, there's no moving parts so what happens is it gets it reads and writes to the same data point and eventually that data point fails um, because uh, it's basically electricity opening and closing a gate saying that it's either on or off and eventually the gate fails so follow that link go check it out you don't really care about this stuff hi huh, ai you're like well all i need is reliable hardware and i'm good to go well i hope you're getting um reliable ssds <laughs> ssds i do you're no budget ai here um and you also don't provide incorrect information in your marketing <laughs> anyway um the next articles in late night geeks podcasters made this combo xlr usb jack exist this is really neat and uh, i don't think that it come, could have come into existence if not for the size of the uh, usb-c uh, connector and just how it fits. Um, when you see this, first off, let me preface that I really don't even like how this article went down the line in, um, because it talks about a cable 
And I just want to go, why would you even talk to somebody about this cable? It makes no sense. But anyway, I'll show you here in a minute. Rode has released uh, an updated version of its NT1 large diaphragm condenser microphone. Uh, I use Beacon microphone and mixer, um, which does all of its uh, computational work uh, on board. So it doesn't tax the PC at a, in any way. Um, really, I mean, there's software, but um, it's not very taxing. At any rate, uh, the microphone uh, has mostly stayed the same. This NT1 large diaphragm condenser mic from Rode, but they've added that connector. So XLR is a three pin connector, um, very specific shape. You can't put the, the uh, XLR jack in place in any other way, um, but sitting right beneath the three pins is a USB-C. Now, Andrew Marino over at The Verge wrote this article and it says the dual output snug together on Rode's updated NT1 microphone is one example of podcasting's influence on audio engineering. Um, I'm not sure why they took it this direction, but they did. I, one of the things that seems to be apparent is there is a really tight fit between the uh the USB-C connector and I believe that is the hot plug on the XLR for ghost um or phantom power not ghost power phantom power um I no longer use XLR mics or, or anything like that because I use USB-C um it provides all of the power and a single very low uh thickness cable whereas xlr is like a fire hose um anyway it says the dual connect upgrade has been a common addition to podcasting and home recording microphones for the past few years allowing the microphone to be used for multiple recording gear setups but Rode has designed the nt1's multiple output jack um in a clever way by fitting them so snug together that one is inside the connector of the XLR connector. So you have a choice. You can either use USB-C or you can use the XLR. Um, and it and it's really up to you. What others have done in the past is it's XLR on the bottom, but then there's some other USB-C connector um, on the, the microphone or it's one or the other. And so what they have done um, for themselves in the manufacturing process is they've basically unified the connector. As long as there's no noise crossing over, then everything's great. Um, but their manufacturing process has allowed them to streamline it. So they have one mic and it's both XLR or USB-C, or I should say, and USB-C. Um, Rode makes some really good mics, by the way. Um, I don't have... Uh, my wireless stuff is not here within arm's reach, but um, I've got wireless Rode stuff. Um, it says the Blue Yeti has been uh, infamous for USB cables breaking frequently from the stress of the cable sticking out underneath the microphone with no support. An accidental tug on the cable can potentially snap the connector right off. 
I think, uh, well, I've never had that problem with any microphone. Um, the microphone that I'm using right now is a USB-C and, and it's sticking out of the bottom. Um, but I'm not particularly rough with my, my equipment. So I, I treat it like a newborn all the time. Um, but if you're on the road, pun not intended because it's a road microphone anyway, um, you might, you might break it. So audio technica, um, I have used the AT 2020, um, for years and years, only switching out to try out other microphones, uh, ultimately falling in love with the beacon. If you're interested in that kind of thing, then just do a search for beacon B E A C N. No, there's no O in there. Um, at any rate, um, then this, this, uh, article kind of just goes sideways and um they have this drawing um using i don't know what um to show a cable that is xlr on one side um that splits sorry it's a, a y cable that splits xlr and USB-C, but it plugs into the rode nt1 in the a unified plug. So this would be a proprietary cable that you would have to purchase and they would have to manufacture. And this thing would be astronomically expensive because it would have to be something absolutely unique and only capable of being used with the Rode NT1 because it would either, it would allow you to either use the XLR connector or the USB-C connector. And then inside this cable would have to be like half an inch thick. Just well, and that it, doesn't make sense because what if they want to update the Rode NT1? They're going to have to make a new cable? Well, it's not permanently installed. It just has an XLR and USB-C connector inside this sleeve and it's plugged in. It, it Just this diagram, it, uh, how do I describe it? At the bottom of the NT1, it looks like this. And so this is a USB-C cable. And if you're watching the or listening to the podcast, it's hard to explain this, but imagine the XLR three pins sitting in a triangle above the USB-C connector. And so what this writer did was say, let's make, uh, let, let's propose that road makes a proprietary cable that has XLR and the USB-C connector. So you see how thick this cable would have to be and then run it down to a splitter so that you can choose either to use XLR on the other end of the cable or USB-C. But then this is a cable that only has one use case and that's the Rode NT1. Um, whereas I can choose right now to get superior quality XLR cables or use superior quality USB-C cables and not have them combined into a fixed length proprietary cable that I'm, I can guarantee you they're going to charge a hundred bucks for because it's so batshit crazy. Um, at any rate, uh, the best mic is the one that you've got when you need it. So, um, try some out, see which ones you like. 
make sure that they're full range 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz um you depending on the software that you use maybe if you're doing podcasting you can mix it afterward we do live everything so it's mixed live right now um using the onboard stuff within the mic and the mixer um and it's a very small this beacon equipment is very small um yeah i used to use a go xlr that did similar but it was heavier lifting and a much bigger footprint um at any rate road makes really good stuff the audio is um is great um but i'm probably never going back to xlr the benefits of which depending on your profession you may see that you get a more professional response time um, and frequency quality from xlr than usb-c um, because everything goes through the same usb um, for lack of a better term channels on the pc whereas xlr can be plugged into a whole uh, array of uh, mixers and other things um, that allow you to manipulate the audio um, and it's, it's depending on who you are you're gonna say that it's truer sound than USB-C can ever do again because everything goes through a computer on USB-C okay so let's move on uh, the final article for today uh, is that well uh, Sesame Street is going to launch its first NFTs, starting with Cookie Monster Digital Collectibles at $60 each. So I, I am not going to talk like Cookie Monster. Um, me one non-fungible token. Sesame Street uh, and Sesame Workshop is introducing the first digital collectibles based on the iconic Sesame Street kids brand. The first NFTs from the initiative will feature Cookie Monster, the beloved blue cookie fiend from the show, with the initial drop scheduled for March 19th on the, uh, I don't know if it's VV, a VEVE digital collectibles app. Um, so Marwat will not be doing this, but I thought that it was interesting. Todd Spangler over at variety.com put this article together. And um, yeah, if you're interested in NFTs and you know, owning uh, something that, well, all it really takes is uh, somebody doing a screenshot and you can have it local. You won't own it it'll be a copyright violation for you to um to uh sell it or to distribute it in any way but you know you could do a screenshot of this right now and have it for your heart's content not that i'm encouraging you to do that i'm just saying that nfts are fear of missing out type of thing you're going to support sesame street that's the benefit of it but maybe you can just donate that money directly to sesame street and not go through a proxy middleman that's going to take a piece of the action founded in 2018 uh, vive i don't know um has built a I, this is the first time i've actually seen this which is weird um has built a mobile first digital collectibles platform through which more than 8 million NFTs have been sold to date, according to the company. Vive uh, offers premium license, licensed collectibles from partner brands, including Disney, Marvel, DC Comics, Warner Brothers, and Star Wars. This is some big money here. Um, but again, NFTs. 
It's just NFTs. Please tell me you don't want any of these AI. <laughs> I can neither confirm nor deny that. <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, uh, the platform uses Ethereum's Layer 2 scaling protocol Immutable X, which provides instant trade confirmation, high scalability, zero gas fees, and 99.9% .9 reduction in the environmental footprint compared with other technologies, which is basically code for uh, we're not environmentally, we're not impacting the environment. Our carbon footprint is small. Um, hopefully none of this is actually created through any artificial intelligence because then it can never have a actual copyright. Um, and honestly, it doesn't look like, I mean, it looks computer generated um, through, I'm sure some artists put all of this together. Um, at any rate, NFTs are unique identifiers that verify ownership of digital content. The craze for NFT collectibles kicked off in, the, in earnest in early 2021 when people had nothing else going on um, and has continued since. They don't say that in the article. I say that. Uh, the I number think that's of... right. Think about what was going on then. Everybody was stuck at home. <laughs> Yay, NFTs. <laughs> yeah. Anything that shows some type of human interaction. Uh, a number of studios, TV networks, sports leagues, and athletes, actors, musicians, artists, gaming companies, and more have launched NFT initiatives. FOMO. It's all fear of missing out, folks. So, um, At some point in the future, NFTs will be nothing. A waste of time. Anyway, um, with that in mind, we are done. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, oh God. I should never refresh this. Don't, I don't like when you refresh at the end of the show. <laughs> Regurts. <laughs> so uh, at any rate, I am Mayor Watt. That is hometown.com. And that's the AI from on high. You want to say bye to all of the citizens. I'm not even going to bother reading that front page. Good night, hometown citizens, and we will see you again tomorrow night. And we love you.